we read nonfiction to learn and to grow, the pain point is the thing that we want to change. In Clear's book, he talks about his life feeling out of control, his wanting a sense of order, the choices that he made, and the challenges in life. I mean, those are all a reader's pain point. Pain points is a term that comes from the business world that in marketing, that's what we talk about in terms of what we solve. You know, what does a product solve? A nonfiction book in some ways is a product. And so you pick it up because you want things to be better. Hey there, welcome back to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career by learning how to blend business with passion. The episodes on Lit Match offer a few ways to do this, like interviews with literary agents, interviews with authors or other publishing professionals paired with big takeaways and writing assignments, and first chapter deep dive analysis episodes, which is what I have for you today. A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege to speak with Howard Yoon, a literary agent who specializes in nonfiction at the Ross Yoon Agency. He had tons of great insights to share in the craft and book business, and you might have left that episode eager to query him. But to query a nonfiction book, unlike a fiction book, you need to perfect a book proposal instead of a completed manuscript. That's where today's first chapter deep dive analysis comes in. Whether or not you want to understand what makes a great book proposal or a nonfiction book, this episode examines not the first chapter, but the introduction of James Clear's best-selling phenomenon, Atomic Habits. Plus, I couldn't analyze this opening with any better book coach than today's guest, Barbara Boyd. Barbara Boyd is a book coach who coaches nonfiction writers on topics that include leadership, finance, marketing, human resources, health and wellness, agriculture, real estate, technology, and memoir. Barbara has coached close to 100 writers through writing more than 200 books, including Jenny Nash's Blueprint for a Nonfiction Book. She was certified by Author Accelerator in January 2021, and she draws on her experiences as both a writer and a book coach when she facilitates conversations about ideas and process. With two other Author Accelerator book coaches, Barbara is leading a memoir writing retreat in Maine in September of 2023. It's titled Mainly Memoir, and you can learn more about it at the website Mainly, Maine is in the state, M-A-I-N-E-L-Y, memoir.com. Applications are now open, all of which you can learn more about on Barbara's website or the Mainly Memoir website, and I'll include all of that in the show notes. I can say with confidence that I personally learned a lot from Barbara's insights on analyzing and coaching nonfiction in this episode, and I strongly recommend that if you have a notepad, you get it out for this episode. We'll cover everything from the big questions that you need to consider when crafting the opening of a nonfiction book, all of which you'd also want to prepare for a book proposal, as well as the pain point that you should consider when writing your nonfiction book and book proposal. These are some of the many exceptional elements that James Clear exemplified in his captivating nonfiction book, all of which Barbara and I analyze and discuss in this episode. Let's get into it. Hi, Barbara. Thank you so much for being here. 
Listeners, I am really excited about this. I have to tell you, nonfiction is not my area of expertise, but I really enjoy reading it. Barbara had suggested Atomic Habits, and I was overjoyed with that suggestion because I've wanted to read this book forever for my own personal use, as well as just discovering why is it this phenomenon that it really is. Barbara, we've talked off podcast. You are going to teach me a lot. And I know that you're going to teach listeners a lot. So this first chapter deep dive analysis is going to be great. Thank you, Abigail. It's a pleasure to be here. I love this kind of work. Analyzing something, I think that what you do is fantastic. And there is a lot to learn from this book, for sure. Absolutely. Before we get into it, why don't we let listeners know a little bit more about you? You are a book coach who specializes in nonfiction books like this. So tell us what you do and why this is such an area of fascination for you. I coach nonfiction. I have written about a dozen nonfiction books, so that's where I ended up following that as I went into coaching. What I found when I was writing nonfiction, often with a co-author, I was in a coaching position. So even before I did the Author Accelerator certification, the book coaching certification, I was doing this kind of work. And different than an editor, a book coach thinks about the writer. It's not just about the writing. It's not just about the words on the page. And the people I work with are experts in their field. They're used to being at the top of their game. And then they sit down to write a book and they don't have any idea what they're doing. That's where I come in and say, it's okay. You've never done this before. You don't have to know what you're doing but you're intelligent, you are a thought leader, and you can do this. And that is very much part of the book coach's role, as well as taking them through a process that works. I use Jenny Nash's blueprint for a book. Jenny was also one of my coaching clients. And it takes people through the process of writing a book and really thinking about why they're writing it, what they want to accomplish, and making that happen. It speaks to the heart of nonfiction books. When you pick up something like Atomic Habits, I'll just read part of the blurb. It says, Atomic Habits will reshape the way you think about progress and success and give you the tools and strategies you need to transform your habits. Whether you are a team looking to win a championship, an organization hoping to redefine an industry, or simply an individual who wishes to quit smoking, lose weight, reduce stress, or achieve any other goal. And this is by James Clear. I didn't mention the author before. So Atomic Habits by James Clear. And it's so interesting. We're going to get into the introduction. We're going to do a deep dive analysis specifically on the introduction and talk about the first chapter after, but focus on the introduction. Part of the introduction, James Clear talks about how initially his work started as a blog and he was posting on Mondays and Wednesdays. That's one thing that I found so interesting about nonfiction writers and when they're bringing these topics that are universal, like, of course, they have their niches, but they appeal to the human who wants to learn something. They work as learning tools, as, as resources. And I think one of the biggest questions I'm always asking myself is, why is this substantial enough to be a book versus a blog? And you've hit that nail on the head when you mentioned that so many people maybe experts in what they're doing, but they don't actually know how to put a book together. When they do sit down and tackle what they're going to write as a nonfiction book, how is that different than a novel? Is that process similar? Is it different? Are we just completely different animals here? What do you think about that? Some of the elements are the same, 
because of story. Nonfiction today involves a lot of story, unless it's a very technical book. But I think even in a technical book, stories are used as examples. That's how we learn. That's how we remember things. That approach, of course, comes up with fiction as well. But the purpose, of course, is different. A nonfiction book is typically to teach something or to change someone's mind, to give a different point of view, whereas a novel, while it may do that, the at its foundation is usually about entertainment. So the reason that someone is writing that is different. They perhaps think less about their audience. I don't know that's good or not for a novelist. I think a novelist should also think about their audience. But with nonfiction, that's very critical. Who are you trying to reach? I drive clients to be very specific about that, to create an ideal reader or an avatar. It's not to be exclusive. It is because when you've got that person in mind, your writing becomes very clear. That's great to know and something to keep in mind as we do go into this deep dive analysis. It's interesting. I loved talking about what we were going to analyze, why we were going to analyze it. And you had suggested after we both reread Atomic Habits, the opening of this, you had suggested, I think we need to focus on the introduction instead of the first chapter. And traditionally, when we've been doing, when I've been doing novels with other book coaches and writers and editors on the podcast, we've been doing first chapters because it's the first pages. And, you know, it's usually the advice is don't have a prologue unless there are very specific reasons for having something. But so interesting because you had said we need to do the introduction and explained why. And I was like, that makes total sense. I agree with you completely. Then I read Atomic Habits with the introduction. I was like, yep, that's exactly what we need to analyze. So I'd love to learn more about why an introduction is so important when you're talking about nonfiction books and why you need to grab the readers in the introduction so that they don't skip it, because it really does set up so much if you actually Mm -hmm. do read that introduction. There are some people who think the introduction doesn't matter. They are convinced that people skip the introduction. And shame on the reader if they skip the introduction. But that's not permission for the author to not include one. The introduction is the place where you set expectations for the rest of the book. But more than that, you really begin to build trust with the reader. Because you are teaching them, you want to keep that reader engaged for the next few hundred, 250 pages. That introduction is what grabs them. It lets them know, however many hours I'm going to spend reading this book, it's worth my time to invest those hours. Again, because it's not like a novel where you start and you're like, oh, I have to figure out how this is going to end. So often nonfiction is about self-improvement. Like, well, should I spend the next 10 hours reading this book or should I go to the gym? <laughs> There's, We only have so many hours in the day. And the, the introduction sets up those expectations, builds trust, and also builds credibility. So not only, yes, I like what this person is saying, I believe in them. I can learn from them. They've got that minimum 10% more experience than I have because often it's not that somebody has to have, you know, 100% more experience than the reader, but enough that they're giving them something new. They're giving them a different way to think about something. So a good introduction accomplishes that, grabs the reader immediately with some kind of opening hook. Again, in today's writing style for nonfiction, it's typically a story and then shows the credibility 
and trustworthiness of the author and also talks about the reader's pain point so that the reader can begin to self-identify, yes, this is the book that I need to read. This book is going to change my life. When you've identified that pain point, also briefly explaining how the book will do that. Is it a framework? Is it a change of mindset or something along those lines? Definitely. Very interesting. As we go into the DJI analysis, which we'll move into, I just want to let listeners know, I am letting Barbara take a lot of the lead in this conversation. She knows what she's talking about, and I definitely have input, but it's fun to join really the listening seat in this conversation today. And what I mean by that is that normally in these episodes, we've structured analysis by the seven key first chapter questions that I pulled from Paula Munet's book, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. And we look at those because we ask those questions in order to understand how did these first pages set up expectations for the big picture story? Those I still think apply in this introduction. So mm-hmm. I think that we can hit those maybe in a differentiated way of of phrasing the question. But I do think that we hit those big questions because like any story, nonfiction or fiction, memoir, of course, as well, memoir reads more like fiction, then we need to have those expectations to know where we're going to be engaged. When we get into the scene analysis, though, I think that we need to shift gears a bit and analyze the scene a little bit differently. Now, James Clear's Atomic Habits is an exception in the sense that and Barbara will talk about this more, and we've talked about this off podcast, the opening almost reads like memoir in the sense that there's a personal story. And I do think that you can apply the five commandments to that story. I don't think that that is the body of the introduction. So when we get into that scene analysis, Barbara has a better way of analyzing scenes, which I'm excited to follow her lead and respond to that approach. Hang in there with us and have fun with it. It's going to be great. We'll go ahead and move into the analysis now, and we are focusing on the introduction. If you haven't read Atomic Habits, what you're going to get in this introduction is very briefly in the beginning, a personal story about James Clear. When he was a sophomore in high school, a baseball bat flew into his face and shattered his eye sockets, his nose, and there was severe inflammation in his brain. He was rushed to the hospital. It Looks like it was life and death for quite a bit. His parents talked about how it was one of the worst nights of their life. It's a very gruesome experience. And from that, there was a ton of recovery that James had to undergo to the point of even learning how to swallow again. So you get this very personal story. And then he talks about how when he went to college, it was a turning point for him because Before that, he had even baseball was really important to him in high school, but he started to not make the varsity team his junior year. And then he did make the varsity team his senior year, but played in 11 games, I think, something like that. So this, I want to say hobby, but I think it was more than a hobby to him that was really important to him. He no longer had the talent. It seems like he no longer had the talent of some other competitive players. And when he went to college, what he started to do was he adapted small habits, sleeping well, studying, certain studying priorities. He talked about some weightlifting, and he just developed these small micro habits that were cornerstones into his everyday. Through that, he gradually, over time, he started to really become successful. He talks about how in his college, he reached the peak of his potential. He does play baseball. He becomes a starting pitcher. 
and eventually is even given an award of an All-American title, which is, you know, just really amazing. And from there, he talks about how these habits just became this drastically important way of his existence and how he went through his day and starting to understand habits is really what he took on as a fascination that he started to explore and eventually started to blog about in 2012. And from 2012 to 2014, he had grown his email list from 1,000 subscribers to over 100,000 subscribers. That quickly turned into 200 or 250,000 subscribers that landed him a book deal with Penguin Random House. So clearly his advice on habits was hitting home for a lot of people and changing lives in these huge instrumental ways. So he started speaking at conferences. Sports coaches were using these in speeches to go over what his, what his idea of habits were and how to apply them in their life. And what we're going to learn about what he sets up in this introduction is the importance of atomic habits in the sense that you have these small habits that work in systems and how we need to focus on systems instead of goals. And when we do that, we can change our lives. He, in the first chapter, talks about the difference of a big changes over a long gap of time. And he uses this great example in the first chapter about how even if you were to change your direction of three degrees in an airplane flying from New York to D.C., I might be messing that one up. You're flying somewhere to New York, and if you change it three degrees, you end up in D.C. And just these tiny changes will change your life over time. And what most people fail to do is that they don't see quick results. So they focus on goals and there's no motivation to continue a system of habits, of good habits, after a goal is achieved. Helping people understand why habits are so important and why bad habits or good habits over time will drastically change your life. Do you have anything to add there, Barbara, about that introduction? You captured everything there. I'm going to hold my comments as we go through each of the seven questions. questions. Great. Awesome. Okay. We will move into the seven key first chapter questions then. The first question deals with genre. And the question is, what kind of story is it? This is where James Clear is a little deceiving because it does open a bit like memoir. His opening story is fairly long for a nonfiction book. That said, he had the advantage of a captive audience. The people who were buying his book were already familiar with what they were getting into, so they were intrigued. He probably had people who were interested in knowing what his story was, so he captured them. It's a fascinating story. That opening line is amazing, and and I'm getting ahead of myself talking about why it works. So genre here is a little misleading in terms of the actual opening of the introduction. However, nonfiction has the benefit of a title and subtitle and back cover copy. Most of the time, people know what they're getting into when they buy the book. So there are some expectations set already. As I read through this, because I was so engaged in his story, I was less concerned about Uh oh, this is going in the wrong direction. You're going to disappoint readers because I think it made him really likable and identifiable. It's like, wait a minute, if if I had this drastic trauma happen to him and has been able to have the success, I, in my everyday normal distractions, you know, what, what keeps me from building good habits, my phone, probably. If he can do it, I can do it. 
So even in its length, I think given his situation and how he was known already, it works. It really works. If he were an unknown with no platform, I would be a little concerned if I were coaching him. Okay, so that's an interesting comment because I would say, and you and I had talked about this off podcast, normally in a nonfiction book, you wouldn't open up with a personal story like this. And this is, to me as a reader, and maybe this is just because I'm drawn heavily towards fiction and memoir, but immediately I loved it because of that. That made it really personal to me. And the focus of the introduction isn't on here was this great trauma in my life that I had to recover from. It really is just this inciting incident that shows you this is the beginning of when I learned that I had to develop small habits because in order to succeed, I had to apply what little control I had left. And that came in the behavior of small things. I think that that is really life-changing for a lot of people to hear because so much in our lives is out of our control. But how we behave is in our control. And we don't even have to think about that as achieving these great expectations. I think he even goes on on that. Like basically like we put so much pressure on, on monstrous changes, but it's the small changes over time that drastically, he even says, you can tell where your life is going to be based on what your small habits are and mm-hmm. how if you eat something bad one time, that's not a big deal. But if you do that consistently over a long time, then you can anticipate what the expectation of that will be. And the same thing is with bad sleep. Everything always catches up to us. So I felt like that was really empowering. Like anything, something with great change is very intimidating. Writing a book is intimidating because writing 90,000 words is hard work. But writing 500 words is manageable. If we can think about it and breaking it down and developing those good purposeful habits that help us move forward in a meaningful way, then I think that we're motivated to do so. When we go back to the idea of the genre and what story is this, in the other episodes, they talk about this content genre and this commercial genre. Commercial genre being what you would market the story as and content genre being the story type. Now, this is nonfiction that opens almost like memoir, but the majority of it feels like an instructive manual on how to live better. So mm-hmm. would you would you call this a how-to book? Is it in, in more like an encyclopedic book? Is, are there categories within nonfiction that you think that you could generalize this? I would call it a how-to book. And it's not uncommon for how-to to have stories. And here in the introduction, it's about building that trust and credibility. And throughout the book, he has stories because examples in a how-to book are the best way that you can learn. You've got the explanation of how to do it, but seeing it in action, sort of the difference between showing and telling. You have that story of like, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I know how to do that. But he does an interesting thing with the headings. So he opens with his story. His story is a little bit longer than usual, but It's such a compelling story. It works. Mm -hmm. It keeps you going. The pace is very quick. Then he uses that heading, how I learned about habit. Like, oh, okay, I am in the right book. So he reminds you there on, it's showing up as page five on my ebook version. He reminds you of that with the heading. So headings are your friend in nonfiction. Mm -hmm. They are like signposts along the road to let you know that you're headed in the right direction. He also leave sort of Easter eggs, I think, throughout the book. In that second paragraph of that section, how I learned about habits, he says, I wasn't going to be starting on the baseball team anytime soon. 
So I focused on getting my life in order. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't want to get their life in order? Right. <laughs> like He's got us. He's like, yeah. oh my gosh, we're going to learn how he got his life in order. That means I can do it too. Yes. And so yes. he's you know, really does some very clever, nuanced language use throughout yes. that works at a, at a very unconscious level. We notice it because that's what we do. Mm-hmm. But for a reader, it's a subliminal message coming through. And right lets us know what's to come. Okay, that's great to know. So it feels like it's like a how-to book as a story type, as more of a content and probably a self-help as a commercial. Would you go in that area or not quite self-help? I think it's I probably personal growth or personal development more than okay. self-help. Okay. Self-help a lot of times tends to almost veer into like new age in my mind anyway. And so... Mm-hmm. It seems that this, I would put, say, personal growth. or Personal, personal growth. Well, that feels better already. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. when I think about self-help, different comps would come to mind. A growth sounds great. Okay. The second question is about plot. And the question is, what is the story really about? The story is about building habits. I mean, we know once we get into how I learned about habits early on in the in the introduction, once his story is out there, we know that this is about going from no habits or bad habits or a disorganized life to order, accomplishment, good habits, calm and ease. It's like a over the rainbow vision. And if we want to talk about story within losing, using that word very loosely in nonfiction, there is still that arc of who the reader is at the beginning of the book and who they are at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. This is something that's really interesting because when we say the word plot, and this is just because I'm so grounded in fiction. So in fiction, plot is indispensable. Like <laughs> There has to be a forward-moving plot. And when I'm looking at plot, I'm thinking about how are we advancing the story? That's a big thing where maybe plot in the traditional sense is not how nonfiction works or how nonfiction applies plot. But you still need to advance the story. So it's not just another article on your blog. There is something that we're moving towards so that we do have that that incremental change as an author who's writing it and as the reader who is receiving those lessons. So you had mentioned off podcast when you were thinking about genre and plot that sometimes when you're working with writers, they don't really know their genre and they switch genres mid-book. And I was curious if you could share a little bit more about why that happens, and how it's very clear that Atomic Habits does not do that. Especially with someone who's writing nonfiction, they've got a lot of expertise in their heads, and they're trying to put everything into one book because writing a book is hard, and they think, I'm never going to do this again, so I'm doing everything at once. So they'll just start throwing things in, and you're moving along very nicely, and then suddenly chapter six starts talking about something else completely different or goes really deep into one piece of an entire framework. Sometimes it's quite a visceral reaction. I'll be reading and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm like stumbled into a different book or, you know, something went wrong at the printer. So I think it mostly happens, again, because writing a book is hard and people just want to cram it all in there. It's also, if you don't start with a good outline, thinking about what is that structure? How does each chapter build from one to the next? 
And that certainly happens in fiction as well. How are you going to lead the reader through your ideas? In Atomic Habits, later on when he starts getting into the actual framework of how to build habits, he has those charts that have the the bolded part of what was talked about in that chapter, and then it's grayed out. And, and so you you really see the actual build. And I can only imagine that that was part of his outline in the beginning when he was figuring out what he did. Because if you think about James Clear in particular, he didn't start out thinking, I'm going to become a habits expert. He started out thinking, I want to get my life in order. How do I do that? And then as a consequence, he realized that maybe he did have a system, but he probably needed to sit down and really like, what is that system? How do I teach this system to someone else? Because it's easy to do it for yourself. If you need to teach it, you really need to think about how does it work? You know, he gives credit to Charles Duhigg and the other gentleman whose name I, the psychologist whose name I can't remember. It's almost like he had made his system and then went to find people who could codify it. Mm -hmm. Yes. I went off track there. No, I no, that was very insightful. I think that, that was good off track because I think that's one thing that nonfiction writers who are trying to figure out outlining, they need to be cognitive of as they build their outline because it can't just be bits and pieces that then fall into a book that is about a topic. It has to be something that builds. We're still building towards a final revelation. So that makes sense. James Clear had this giant audience. So he probably is a combination of a really great writer and had a really great editor. So it, based on how I was describing the introduction, it felt like the publishing house was coming to him at that point where a lot of writers are trying to figure out how do I really model that I'm an expert in this area of expertise or in my area of interest. So they do have to really think about the how because to be a good teacher, you have to think about the how. You have to think about the question. And you have to think about what you're going to do in order to answer that in the best way possible in a way that built. Okay, the third question is, is about point of view. The question is, who is telling the story? And you've told me this is interesting because some authors use their own stories to demonstrate their point and others use third party stories. So I'd love to hear your insights about this. The first step to figuring that out is thinking about who will your reader be? Who are you trying to reach and what's going to be most effective for them? He uses both. He opens with his story. But when you get to chapter one, he is using the rowing team, I believe. is they, It was a team, the rowing team. Yeah, the cycling. No, cycling they weren't team. rowers. Yeah. They were cyclers. The cycling team. Yep. Mm -hmm. Cycling team. Yep. And so there he's talking. He's using someone else's story. You want to think about whose story is going to be most effective. The flip side or, or another thing to think about, especially in business books, maybe it happens in science. I'm most familiar with it in business leadership marketing. Authors tend to use case studies. They're using either anecdotes for companies that are very famous or they're using client stories. Sometimes they might even need to change some of the details or names for confidentiality. But if they are trying to build their credibility, perhaps as a consultant or as an executive coach, they probably want to talk more about their client's successes than about their own. There's a combination there of what's going to benefit the reader and what 
can I do to get the reader to take the call to action that I'm going to give them? In Clear's case, first person works because, especially in the beginning, because it is a more individual idea of changing our individual habits. In chapter one, when he uses the cycling team, he's giving an example in some ways of how collectively changing habits can have a bigger impact. Also, just a nice mix. It's like, okay, you've heard a lot about me in the introduction. It's not just me that this system works for. Let me give you an example of something that seems totally off in a, in a you wouldn't think about the habits of a cycling team. And yet applying those same small habit principles had a, quite a big impact. That's something that seems important in all nonfiction books is that you are pulling from outside resources and sharing research. It's research on that appro- that proves the idea. You see an example of how he got his life in order, but here's more evidence. Here's more evidence of why this works and why what I'm saying will help you. I do want to touch on something that he does that's very clever. Yeah. On page six. So he's, this is in the section where he's already said how I learned about habits and he starts talking about being in college and it's first person. I did this, I did that. And then suddenly there's a paragraph that begins, we all face challenges in life. Like, he has grabbed you. It's not just me that face challenges. We're in this together. He's very subtly tapped into the reader's brain to say, it's not just me. You too can make these kinds of changes in your life. It's interesting that well-placed paragraph and use of first-person plural that makes it inclusive. Very skillful. I'm sure Mm -hmm. it was intentional, right? Because it brings everyone, like you said, it brings everyone into the conversation. And I don't, I might have just, I subconsciously, you absorb that and you are pulled in. But when Mm -hmm. you do step back, why analysis is so important and so fun is because you can pull out very mindful, small details like that, that completely change how a reader embraces a story. But I do think point of view is really important in nonfiction that people tend to just write how they speak. Yes. And that's not quite the same. We don't write how we speak. That's true. And an intentional use of point of view can be really, really helpful. I did work with a woman on a self-help book and she wanted almost the whole book to be in first person plural mm-hmm. because she didn't want it to she didn't only want to talk about her own experience she didn't want it to feel accusatory to use second person which is often how self-help is you know you need to do this you need to do that Mm -hmm. and by using first person plural we throughout it became very warm and compelling yeah inviting and she did that for the whole book most of it, yes. I mean, there were there were some planned examples that were told in third person, but in places where it could have been either first or second singular, she should go for the first person plural. Where do you think it is important to not write in first person plural? Are there any times that it should be used? It can weaken your authority. So if you want to really be an authority, seen as the authority, I think you need to own that and use first person. You use first person or don't use first person? Use first person. Okay. 
The alternative to that would be using third person, perhaps demonstrating through an anecdote, something that, you know, you've observed or managed. But I think first person plural can, I think it is softer than first person singular or third person singular. I mean, it makes sense because you don't want the friend that doesn't listen to your problem and just info dumps on how you should fix your life. But you do want the friend who listens and then is able to justify what advice they're giving because of something that they've been through when you think about the psychology of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. Question number four deals with character. And the question is, which character should readers care about the most? And this is very interesting because I think I had this one right when, when I was see- talking to you a bit after it, but I'm going to let you dive into it and then share my thoughts. I think the characters should care the most about themselves in in nonfiction. What are they learning? Because that's what's going to keep them on the page. Even if they're not, maybe they're just curious about a topic. It's not some sort of topic that's going to change their lives, but there's still something in them that's going to change. So I think the reader is the character. And I think they should be fairly self-serving. <laughs> In reading nonfiction, especially when it's in, you know, self-help, personal development, prescriptive nonfiction, because there's that self-identification that happens. But even when it's not, if it is just something, some sort of interesting topic, in the back of their mind, I think they're still thinking, okay, what would I have done? Mm-hmm. I think I think readers are still driven by their ego in nonfiction. Well, we come to nonfiction to learn something. You just Mm -hmm. pointed that out. So I am with you when I was looking at character and I had asked you, do you see, is there a protagonist in a nonfiction book? And really that's the reader, right? Because the reader gets to change through the content. By learning the content, we have an opportunity to change because we are provided guidance on how to change in the way that we want to based on the book that we picked up. That makes total sense to me. And it's so interesting because that really reemphasizes the great point that you just pointed out about how James Clear makes it about, this isn't just me. This is all of us. It it redirects the importance of who he's talking to and why he's talking to them and how what he's talking about will be important in their growth as a human being. Question number five deals with setting. And the question is, where and when does the story take place? This question is tricky because there is a setting based on the personal story of James Clear when he opens it. But in general, is there a setting to a nonfiction book? Only in as much as it emphasizes or confirms that you're in the right genre. So again, here he's, he took a risk because. It's not like, it, you know, the beginning part of it was very much the story of the trauma that he suffered. We didn't get into his habits until after in that, that first section that has a heading. But as you said, that was his inciting moment. If he hadn't gotten hit in the face with a bat, he may be a baseball player today. Maybe he never would have written about habits. And so that story is the inciting moment and it's compelling and it's there. But the setting of that story, he could have had some other kind of trauma. It doesn't really matter where that happened. In perhaps if you're writing a business book or a health book, the setting is more important that, you know, there's a corporate setting and and 
you're witnessing some sort of takeover that has a good ending or a person who's overweight and has heart trouble, who's struggling to climb a mountain and, you know, that jinx setting is important. The setting comes back to the reader. Where does your reader experience the pain that you are going to solve for them? Yes, I love that you phrased it that way because the setting, if you direct it in that way, the setting then is based on the individual reader. What setting are they in that is fueling bad habits? Because we're probably Mm -hmm. putting this up to learn how to have good habits. Mm -hmm. And like we said, you can figure out setting based on where he was when he was growing up and where he went because we know that he is air flighted to Cincinnati. So we know he's in generally in that area in high school. And then he goes, he attends Denison. So we know that he's there for college. And you know, it's interesting because he says the turning point for him really was that he went to Denison. And I do think that there is, I mean, I'm a big believer in everything happens for a reason. So I think it's one of those things where it's like, I do think your environment will change how you behave. However, your behavior, that's the thing that he's trying to point out. Like your behavior is what you can control. So that really can be applied in spite of your setting, almost, you know, (laughs) especially in college, which he, this was another part that I highlighted. On the one hand, I highlighted it because of his very astute use of showing and telling. Yeah. Because it's very nuanced in these sentences here. But he's talking about being in college. And while my peers stayed up late and played video games, like, who are you, reader? Are you one of my peers staying up and playing video games or are you building good sleep habits right so that dorm room setting that he describes very loosely and yet we know immediately because it's familiar my peers stayed up late and played video games i built good sleep habits and went to bed early each night in the messy world of a college dorm i made a point to keep my room neat and tidy he has given us a setting in that college dorm where he resisted the norm and was already trying to build his good habits. Right. Which was groundwork for who he became as mm-hmm. an adult. He uses the word responsible. And uh, I think it was yesterday I came across someone post about Amaya Angelou. I don't know if it was from a poem or a book, but it talked about responsibleness where adults, the difference between becoming a responsible adult and really reflecting on ourselves and are, are we growing? Are we existing well in this world? Are we contributing to the world versus taking away from it or taking advantage of it? Or are we just aging? It was really interesting because I saw that and I was like, you know what? Probably most of the time, all of us are just aging. And But when we can work towards becoming responsible, aka when you can start to what he was doing here, apply the good habits, it doesn't mean don't have fun in your life. I think that you are going to just become a more fruitful person because these good habits lead you towards the things that you're striving to achieve, right? Mm -hmm. And this is a digression, but I couldn't help but think listening to you, even the word responsible, if we think of it as how we respond, that's what he did. How did he respond to his college lights? He didn't At the beginning, it didn't look like he was going to be on the baseball team. So he's like, I need to do something else and focused elsewhere. And by doing that, he also then had that success in baseball. Yeah, major success. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like he just felt like I wasn't going on to be an MLB player, but he won awards, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he did better in college than he did in high school. So there you go. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 
All right. That's a great answer and a lot to reflect on. Question number six deals with core emotion. And the question is, how should readers feel about what's happening? And I feel like six and seven are tied together. You did. Yeah, you mentioned that. So I'll say seven. So yes. seven is stakes and stakes in the stakes question. It's what are the stakes and why should readers care about what happens next? So let's talk about why they come together and what they are. Because I don't think that in nonfiction, it's so much about how they're feeling about what happens right there in that moment, because there's the forward movement. They need to take some actions. And in many ways, maybe their core emotion in what's happening is curiosity and wanting to change, wanting to solve for whatever their frustration is. And, you know, their stakes then are either staying where they are, stagnant in their frustration, or coming, getting some sort of resolution. It's probably that core emotion of whatever that might be, that pain point, their frustration, that then pushes them. And that's why that's, that's part of the stake. Their core emotion is what's at stake. Because if their core emotion is, I'm frustrated, my, I don't have order in my life, I don't do all the things that I want to do, what's at stake is staying there versus saying, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to listen to James and change my habits little by little. And what happens next is life gets better. Sure. I am inspired as well, I think, as an emotion. I think mm -hmm. when you hear this, that it's very inspirational and you, yeah. they're, and it's very hopeful in the sense that this there is something that you can control even when it feels like nothing, there, that there's nothing left to control. So yeah. I think that that's very inspirational. And curiosity is definitely an emotion. That's what carries you throughout the whole book. I'm always trying to find, my husband's not a big reader. I'm, books are my life. So <laughs> I'm always trying to find books for him. He does tend to, he loves YA fantasy, but I'm always like, I pick up something like Atomic Habits. I'm like, this might be interesting to him. You know, the other day I was like, hey, would you be interested in this book? This is what it, blah, blah, blah. This is what it's about. He's like, I don't know. So it's really interesting because my thought process here is that I think what James Clear, when he humanizes it so deeply in the beginning, that really does apply to anyone. And it's one of these things where you might have really good habits in your life, yet I'm still interested in the science behind that, you know? And I'm still interested in the emotion that comes with it. And that was one thing that James Clear says defies atomic habits from other books is that we're not just talking about habits here. We're seeing how external factors impact and work with internal factors. And that's not the exact right word. I'd have to find the quote for it again. But essentially, it was the pairing. He was emphasizing why this book is different because I'm going to show you how there are external things going around that are changing or internal things that are going around and they have to go together. I love that he said that because I'm always looking for how your surroundings impact where you are emotionally and mentally and how by understanding your emotional and mental reaction to something and really embracing that, you can choose how to move forward. That's really what Atomic Habits at its core is helping us do and why I'm so curious about it because I believe in it. And now it's just a matter of, okay, no, give me some strategies. Help me out here. <laughs> give me exactly. And give me the science because I'm interested as well in that. Okay, so now we're going to shift into the scene analysis. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, 
The commandments could work in the personal story. So sometimes we, in the fiction for chapter D type analysis, we do a scene analysis to talk about structure and the importance of structure because we do need well-structured scenes that ultimately are not about, can we get to the same exact analysis? I'm never about that. I think that there are many ways to writing. I think if you try, if someone ever tells you there is one way to writing, you run for the hills. That's not for me. And I encourage you to to always be applying multiple resources mm-hmm. and, and writing tools to figure out what works for you and how you tell your best story. All that being said, I do think that there are five commandments in a way that help tell the personal story. And, and I'll just run through them really quickly because I don't think it's the body of what we need to talk about with the scene analysis. And uh, Barbara justified that and said, I agree with you. So we're going to follow her method instead. The five commandments, if you were to look at that personal story and why even if you if you do decide to have something personal, it probably would be effective to have something like this because there are, are patterns in storytelling. And this is what ultimately helps us understand there's a big decision that has to be made. And if a character is faced with a big decision, a crisis decision, there will be change, right? There's a value change in some way. So, you know, very quickly, inciting incident would be the bat hitting his face, I would assume. The turning point, he actually says it. He says the turning point was going to Denison. And at that time, he figured out, I need to apply. Like the crisis question is, do I live the regular college life or do I get my life in order? He decides to get his life in order by applying small habits. And that leads to his whole career and all the triumphs that have followed after that. So we do see that applied. Now, that's not the entirety of the introduction, if even the majority of the introduction. It's a good chunk, but I don't think it's even the majority of the introduction. So, Barbara, let us know when you are looking at a scene analysis, because we do need advancement in a story. We do need chapters. We need introductions to move us into chapters to build towards a final revelation or a final change or small changes throughout the story. So, how do we approach this? What's the way that you recommend we tackle structure or scene analysis in general for nonfiction? That's a big question, I think. And partly for me, because I don't really think about them as scenes. I think about the structure as a whole. Yeah. I was going to say, maybe start there. How is it a scene or not a scene? Yeah. And because I feel like scenes are so related to fiction. And in nonfiction, we have those elements of storytelling, which, you know, do well, as you said, to follow the five commandments. But there's also the purpose of that storytelling is often to illustrate the narrative. And there in that narrative, if we think of it as a scene, there's still an inciting incident, which is probably whatever the problem is that this narrative needs to solve or expound upon. You know, there's not always a problem to be solved. Sometimes it's just explaining how something works. And I'm not sure that there's really a turning point or a crisis there. At that point, you are, how do you explain how something works? How do you write narrative? And how do you share your knowledge? Those are the things that a nonfiction author is thinking about. So again, coming back to the audience, how is the reader best going to perceive and learn this material? What's the order that they need to learn it? In a very schematical, logical way, you might think of one, two, three. What are those things that need to happen? And perhaps each of those things is a sentence within your paragraph. If we think of a scene 
being built with paragraphs. And much like in fiction, each paragraph has sort of a single idea that you move on and that leads into the next one. What I find with nonfiction, the thing that authors tend to forget is that they have knowledge that their readers do not. Thinking about the reader, what's going to serve them, making sure that the order makes sense for the reader. Because oftentimes we have knowledge and we do things automatically and we don't necessarily think about it in a way that's logical to other people, but in a way that's logical to us. And then you've got confusion. And that's where people like an editor, a book coach, a beta reader is really helpful to even read a small portion of something to say, okay, you lost me here. You left something out because an expert has knowledge bias. They're just going to write things out and, and things that are obvious to an expert are not obvious to a non-expert. So making sure that all of those points are covered so that structure in a scene, it's more about logic. But I, I mean, I, I don't know that there are commandments for it, but there is a logic to the commandments as well. You know, you mentioned always going back to the reader. And for me, as a reader, I think that I'm always approaching a question. It seems like there's some sort of overarching question in the introduction probably suggested for the whole story. This is the point of the book. And then on the scene or on the chapter level, there's a mini micro question that would answer all the big points of the story. You had recommended something like when we were working down a first chapter, one thing that we could ask is the point. So why is this chapter here? What is the experience of the reader in this chapter? Now, that might be different than the introduction. So in the introduction, you had said important parts of an introduction are a compelling opening hook. The compelling opening hook for the introduction of Atomic Habits. What do you think that would be? That's his story. Yeah. I mean, look at that first sentence. You've got to be right there with the bat hitting him in the head. Like, yep. how could you, even if it were fiction, you'd be in it. I mean, that yeah. is just an amazing opening sentence. That opening story is his hook. Yep. He has, the reader is on the line and if nothing else, wants to see where he's going. And the line is, on the final day of my sophomore year of high school, I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. So <laughs> then it goes into how severe that actually was. Absolutely. I agree with you. Another thing that you had pointed out with introduction was we need evidence. The author understands them and their pain point. So pain point kept coming up in comments from you when we were talking off podcasts. And this felt really important to me. Could you explain the pain point and why it felt like it's what everything hinges on in the nonfiction books? Because we read nonfiction to learn and to grow. The pain point is the thing that we want to change. In Clear's book, he talks about his life feeling out of control, his wanting a sense of order, the choices that he made, and the challenges in life. I mean, those are all a reader's pain points. Pain points is a term that comes from the business world that in marketing, that's what we talk about in terms of what we solve. You know, what does a product solve? What does a nonfiction book in some ways is a product. And so you pick it up because you want things to be better. Reading it should make your life better. And better might mean how to grow roses. <laughs> it might mean 
that you have better habits. It might be that you're a better team leader or just that you now understand the history of the Civil War. So pain point sounds big, but sometimes it's just a matter of I'm curious and this lack of knowledge. It just I feel like I'm missing something. Yes. And yeah. so having that knowledge, making that change makes us feel better. And he even when he's talking about being in his college room, his dorm, and he made a point to keep his room neat and tidy and to sleep well. These improvements were minor, but they gave me a sense of control over my life. I started to feel confident again. Again, here, he's using subtle language to show the reader. We're going to get to him, you know, building his credibility coming up, but identifying here, he's showing I was where you are. Yeah. I know you, reader, that you feel like you don't have control over your life. Like overwhelm is probably one of the most overused words in the English language right now. There's people feel they don't have control over their lives. Right. Imposter syndrome is another one. So, you know, I started to feel confident again. Wow, I want some of that. He's giving the reader something to self-identify with in terms of a pain point. Yeah. And then he very succinctly says a habit is a routine or behavior that is performed regularly. So not only does he understand your problem, your pain point, he also has a solution that feels like something I can do. And that changes everything. What I'm hearing is that with these pain points, readers are looking to amend either a problem that is holding them back in their life or something that feels like they're lacking something in their life. We're looking for a gain or a solution. Yes. The other part that you had said, some of an author's background to establish credibility for the author. This we've gone over a bit now. We get his personal story, but then we also hear about his blog, about how that grew from 1,000 to 100,000 to 200,000. And now he said something like his email list gets 5,000 new subscribers a week, which was beyond any expectation that he could have dreamed of. I mean... That's crazy. His advice and habits have proven themselves through the following, which was fun to explore and how he felt imposter syndrome hit when he first started his blog. We all have to start somewhere. So I think that that was really relatable as well. The next part is description of the problem and solution the book addresses. This describes the arc of change the reader will experience as they read the book. You've covered that pretty well too. So the, the problem is that we're lacking something in life because of bad habits and mm -hmm. the arc of change that the reader will experience in the book is learn how to apply small habits well so that you, you can experience big changes over time. And that's really what he gets into in that first chapter, chapter two, focusing on systems instead of goals, which was really important. And then mm -hmm. it segues, which is, you know, your last part is segue to the first chapter. As we end that introduction, let me just want to pull up text. So he goes into my recovery, then how he applies the habits. He has these like mini subtitles in the chapter, how and why I wrote this book. Mm -hmm. He talks about that, how this book will benefit you. Exactly. So that's how he sums it up. Yeah. Go ahead. His, his headings are, he left aside cleverness. He was very direct in his headings. It works here. Sometimes I think clever is better depending on the book. But here, these headings are really in keeping with the, the voice and tone that he uses. He's very upfront. This is what you're going to get. He also, how this book will benefit you, he also is still affirming himself as the expert in this field. 
he uses that quote by Mikand, to write a great book, you must first become the book. So mm-hmm. he talks a little bit reinforcing, kind of tying back to that opening story. I learned about them because I lived them. Yes. And all the different ways that he has used them in his life. And then he also pulls in the fact that there's science to support what I've done. Like yeah. I didn't in this per se, but the way that I presented it is what makes me different. Yes. Um, he's still building his credibility, but also letting the reader know what they'll get. And then he just briefly says the backbone of the book is my four-step model of habits. One of the things that I see authors do is they will go through a hole in chapter one or in part one, I'm going to talk about this. And in part two, I talk about that. And I, I don't know that that's really necessary in an introduction. I think it's fine to give a higher level overview hmm. because they're going to read the book. They don't right. know that's what the table of contents does. So right. he, he used the real estate here wisely to build his credibility, give that background in terms of the science and segue there into you're going to get a framework. It's got four parts. You know, there's just enough to let the reader know you are going to learn something. Four parts feels easy. Again, there's something about this that it just feels easy. That's, I think, is also why his book has such a following that it does. I agree with you. It really is sums up going again back into that universal way of, of, of uh, universal approach because the final paragraph in that introduction, I'm just going to read it here because he says it well. There is no right way to create better habits, but this book describes the best way I know an approach that will be effective regardless of where you start or what you're trying to change. The strategies I cover will be relevant to anyone looking for a step-by-step system for improvement, whether your goals center on health, money, productivity, relationships, or all of the above. As long as human behavior is involved, this book will guide you. So it's human behavior, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, th- and this exactly. is what I've learned. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So that's great. That's the introduction. And we are reaching the end of our analysis here. But I'm curious because now we talked about how the introduction really has to start to set the stage, segue into the first chapter itself. That first first chapter is called The Fundamentals, Why Tiny Changes Make a Big Difference is the section. And then the first chapter is The Surprising Power of Atomic Habits, where he opens up with the cycling and he starts to really talk about systems versus goals. That's what I took away as the big parts of it. When you are advising writers on how to satisfy expectations and not make it feel like chapters are piecemealed, but they bleed into each other and they grow with each other. What is there anything structurally that we're looking for there? How do you ensure that they're placed correctly? Because I'm mm-hmm. sure that placement of chapters, mm-hmm. it's foggy. It's very much, again, thinking about the reader. What does the reader know? What does the reader know now? What do they need to know? to get to the next step. So breaking it down into small pieces, you want your reader to get from A to H. So each chapter needs to do B, C, D, E, F, G. (laughs) And here, the reader knows they have a problem, but they need to a little bit understand why and how this solution's going to work. In this first part, the fundamentals, He's explaining how the system works. And then in the parts that follow, he is talking about the laws, how you apply it. The thing that I liked is that he kept the fundamentals 
fairly short because I have seen authors who talk so much about the problem and why it exists and where it came from and all of the history. And then you get maybe 25% of solution in the book. And the balance needs to be the opposite. So he has the three chapters about his fundamentals, but then spends a lot of time on what he calls the four laws. He's got about 25% setting the stage of mindset. I think of it as mindset, sort of like, why, why does his system work? How does it work? And then he goes into the very specifics of the framework and spends the, re- the other 75% of the book talking about the framework. There's a nice balance in what people want. There's a limit to how long someone will stick with you if you're only talking about the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's like lecturing. People don't want to listen to a lecture anymore. We, we need to be engaged in some way. We need to mm-hmm. participate. Yes. We need to be engaged and we want to learn something new. We want something that's going to help us now. And that was the other thing. Even in the fundamentals, where he's not necessarily giving the actual tools, there's still things in there where I found myself thinking, oh, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I can, that makes sense. I can do that. I got to think about this differently. You know, there's, there's useful information, applicable information from the beginning. Makes total sense. And that would be the end of our analysis. So obviously, listeners, Barbara knows what she's talking about. I know I've learned a lot here. I'm going to have to ask you to come back because we're going to learn about nonfiction book proposals at some (laughs) point, because in order for nonfiction writers to traditionally publish, they need to learn how to write a book proposal. So not only do you need to know how to write this book, but the trick here is that unlike fiction books, when you are querying a nonfiction book, you do not need to write the whole book. You need mm-hmm. to write a strong proposal with sample chapters. As a final wrap-up question, I'd love to know what is important to include in a proposal and out of the how can analyzing what really works well in an introduction in the first chapter of Atomic Habits provide an example of helping us helping nonfiction writers think about what actually is going to benefit their proposal versus not. Your book proposal is sort of like a business plan or a sales piece. You are proposing your book to an agent and eventually a publisher. You want them to buy your book. You want them to buy your ideas. You are selling them something. What I think readers can learn from Atomic Habits is how to present compelling writing in terms of sample chapters. It's amazing. The thing that I can only imagine, and I don't remember, I don't know that I've heard James Clear's publishing path. If someone came to him and said, oh my gosh, you have a gazillion followers, you should write a book. Or if he at some point thought, wow, maybe I've got something here and I think I should put it into a long form as opposed to blog posts. But his platform was certainly appealing. And that is something that agents and publishers look for. There's mixed information about whether it needs to be huge or if it's more important to have a captive audience. Agents and publishers want to sell books. So if you, I, there are many, many stories of people who have hundreds of thousands of followers on social media and sell a hundred books because their followers aren't necessarily book buyers. And you may have a very small following 
but a very high percentage of that following is a captive audience that will buy your book. But of course, you need to demonstrate that. Clear definitely demonstrates that with the engagement that he talks about in the introduction, the time that he put in from when he started writing his blog and building that following of engaged followers and then writing the book. He was building a presence in his field. And again, I don't know that he started out. It doesn't sound like he started out thinking, I'm going to be a habits expert. It was just sort of like, I've been doing this sort of cool thing and I'm going to tell some friends about it. And it went from there. But he did grow into this empire of books and calendars and agendas and courses and all kinds of things. Speaking engagement that's, yeah. you know, every nonfiction writer's dream come true. I was going to say, I think here. empire is the perfect word for it. He has, <laughs> you know, the Habit Academy. In this. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think those are the two things that we can learn from him. Start small because when you're first blogging or just putting your idea out there, I think it's better to just have a few people so that nobody really remembers the mistakes that you made. And it also gives you a chance to try different things. I think that's probably why his book is well-written because he was trying different ways of telling his story, different ways of sharing his methods. Mm -hmm. And by the time after six years of blogging that he got to write book, he had metabolized all of that. I remember hearing him say that he was late on one of his deliveries for his manuscript. Writing a book was no easier for him than it is for anyone else. Right. But I do think that the success and the quality of his book is a result of having worked on that material for a long time. He was an expert by the time he got to writing his book. The time and the building. But again, I think captive audience can be more important than sizable audience. Mm -hmm. James Clear has both. And he even had time on his side in the sense of publishing because it was published during a pandemic where people desperately needed this content. Well, Barbara, that brings us to the end of our analysis and the end of the podcast. I've learned a lot. I'm going to have to listen to this one several times and wrap my head around it. So thank you so much. I'm hoping Listeners have been learning as much as I have. Take out your notepads, listen to it again. If listeners would like to find you, where can they find you? They can find me on my website, barbarajboyd.com. I imagine you'll have show notes. I am also on LinkedIn, Barbara Boyd, and I'm on Instagram, but I'm not very active. I'm also hosting a writing retreat next September with two other author accelerated book coaches and you can find information about that at mainly memoir mainly with an e like the state because it's happening in maine ah fun we're in maine in biddeford a little bit north of kennybunk yes not too far from me i love maine what a good place to venture our way to perfect place for a writing retreat well i wish you all the luck with that and i hope To have you on again. Maybe we can talk about book proposals next time. I'd be happy to come back and talk about book proposals. We'll have to find a good sample and (laughs) analyze that. That would be great. It's a good, good resource for sure. Terrific. Thank you, Abigail. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit Match. I genuinely appreciate you, whether or not you're a first-time listener or you're a loyal listener and continue to show up each week to learn more about the writing craft and the publishing industry and submission process. You are what make this podcast special, and I'm incredibly motivated and eager to support you in any part of your writing and publishing process. 
the work that you are doing is meaningful. I mean it when I say that I believe books can change the world one reader at a time. And I thank you for putting that hard work in so that you can share your stories, nonfiction or fiction, with all people across the world. If you'd like to support LitMatch, you can do so by rating and reviewing the show and passing it along to two or more of your writing friends. I immensely appreciate this. Anyone who takes a quick one to two minutes to do this really does make a huge difference because this helps me find and assist more writers like you who either want to grow their writing craft or tackle the submission process and learn more about the publishing industry. If you have any recommendations for the show, I would love to hear them. Please email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com. I take each email seriously, and I hope that I can apply anything specific that you're looking for. Until next time, happy writing. If you're in the query trenches, good luck. I know it can create a roller coaster of emotions in there, but I do believe that if you continue to persevere, if you continue to work hard on growing your craft and develop the best manuscript possible, while also doing your best to understand the market and who would make the best literary agent for you and your career, you stand the best chance at finding and hooking that dream agent. I am cheering you on always and cannot wait to hear when you sign with that literary agent and celebrate your book when it comes out. <laughs>